This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for being here as we approach this holiday weekend coming up next week with uh, 4th of July right around the corner. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. And speaking of 4th of July, does anybody have any uh, major plans, any major family traditions? We are going to be uh, on the water, I think, in South Puget Sound and hanging out with friends' homes and then get ready to watch fireworks. All good things. Family fireworks, food, and maybe some good drinks. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. I'm a bit of a procrastinator. I still need to come up with some plans. That's okay. I'm working on it. How about That's you, okay. Lydia? Uh, I'll probably, I might be out at the ballpark that day. I kind of like going to the, something about uh, 4th of July and baseball is just a fun, fun combination. Classic combination to me. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and especially when the team is winning, it uh, makes the games that much more enjoyable. It does. Although in the past, sometimes there's like a, whether your team is losing or winning, there's just kind of a, a beauty to uh, to it, especially in Seattle. We've, we've been used to losing here for a couple of years, but definitely exciting that they're winning this year. Oh, and then you get your fireworks at the end of the game stuff. It's perfect. In the meantime, before 4th of July gets here, we've got a couple of headlines. What's in the news? We do. Before I get to the headlines, I was going to mention our announcement we made this week with Pearl Jam, the Vitology Foundation, where we are producing a limited edition run of Pearl Jam-themed BSB. What? What? Yeah, and uh, we're doing this in partnership with the foundation that they have for the two uh, concerts that they're hosting at Safeco Field August 8th and 10th that they call the Home Shows, and they've brought together a large contingent of uh, business and nonprofits to help raise money to address the homeless effort in Seattle. And we're part of that effort. And uh, $20 from every bottle we sell of the Pearl Jam themed bottles will go to the Vitology Foundation for this effort. And uh, we're very excited to be partners with them. That is pretty neat. I mean, it doesn't really get more Seattle iconic than Pearl Jam. And I know how active they are in the local community so it pairs really really well with you guys and how important that is to to heritage that's right and uh for more information or to pre-reserve the bottles people can go to heritagedistilling.com and uh, we will be uh producing this batch this month and delivering them for folks in late july perfect in the meantime what's going on in the news in the news uh, it's always interesting the uh collision of art and science when it comes to distilling and we found this article by lauren eads talking about how distilleries in the U.S. are using reggae, hip-hop, and blues to uh, to, uh, accelerate some of the aging in their barrels. And they do this uh, using high, medium, and low notes, especially the bass notes. They fill rooms with subwoofers and uh, other speakers, and then they uh, bombard the barrels with sound, the sound waves going through the wood and causing vibrations in the alcohol to uh, help further interact the alcohol molecules with the wood and to accelerate some of the aging and maturation that goes on. So um, the article uh, shows some before and after pictures of one of the distilleries and how they have the same product put in barrels at the same time and non-musically matured versus musically (laughs) matured and you can see that the color is quite a bit darker Um, and if you tasted it you would probably get much more uh, wood notes coming out and uh, we're going to look for a few of these products in the market and if we can find them we'll do some taste tests and we'll report back to the listeners on what we found about these products in particular 
I'm so curious about this. I'm as a music lover and a, and uh, someone who enjoys spirits as well. It'll be interesting to see if different genres have a different yeah. effect. If different like BPM has a different effect. Well, I think they so mentioned curious. that reggae has a more powerful effect. They said music that has a more powerful bass line creates more vibrations there and therefore is. a greater interaction between liquid and wood. I would have never thought of that, but it makes sense. Well, the bass sound notes, the sound waves are uh, longer and flatter. And so they travel more through uh, the walls of the barrel. And that's why those sound waves get into the liquid with more strength. So is anyone going to be doing like dubstep version of this? Because I feel like that's just <laughs> all bass. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's let's get Dana on that. We'll ask yeah. And I'm sure Dana will want to flood the walls with Wu-Tang Clan. Too. <laughs> I would buy that. <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah. Uh, next up we found, here's yet another article about how millennials are killing another industry. And uh, we come across these articles once a month, I'm sure. I'm not a big fan of the word millennial and applying it to a broad section of the populace. So that's just my disclaimer. I'm just commenting on what the article is talking about. And what they're saying is that millennials are abandoning bars at a higher rate than previous generations. And uh, this was done by the global market research firm called Mattel. And they asked why, and turns out from the study that uh, they determined it takes too much effort to go out. And they are ascribing this as, in essence, that millennials are lazy <laughs> and they don't want to go out anymore. Uh, so again, I uh, tend not to want to ascribe that. I, I personally believe that uh, folks in that generation, um, you know, they have a lot of school debt. They have come out, entering the workforce, been saving like crazy to try and get their first home at a time when home prices are out, out the wazoo mm -hmm. and uh, going out has gotten more expensive. And, yeah, so they're uh, being responsible, not lazy. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> the exact and, opposite. You know, when you think about the options for dining in the U.S., it breaks down into different kind of clusters. You've got very high-end fine dining, which is uber expensive. You've got the fast casual and you've got everything in between. And at some point, the cost of the food outweighs uh, what they may feel they're getting for value, especially if they're wanting something that's a healthier option. So what this means is then these restaurants, if uh, millennials are not going out, but they're using the pickup options or order to go, that's where you're seeing more restaurants offering uh, alcohol to go home with the food that is being picked up or delivered because you, people still want to consume alcohol while they're drinking while they're eating at home. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So if you are a shareholder or an investor in uh, the restaurant industry, you've got to keep track of this past few millennials. <laughs> and last up on the list, we found just in time for summer, uh, we've been talking about the rising phenomenon of rosé wine <laughs> and all the derivatives of rosé, and now we've got kegs of rosé wine available for parties. This is pretty incredible, and I need one of these. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, Bridge Lane Wine sells the kegs in five different varietals, including Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Red Blend, White Merlot, and of course, Rosé. Each keg holds the equivalent of 26 bottles of wine, wow. which is about 130 glasses. The kegs cost $240 each, and that comes down to about $2 a glass. So mm -hmm. it makes them pretty economical. And something, especially for Rosé or Chardonnay, if you have it on keg, and just like beer, you have it on ice, and it's a hot summer day, uh, it's going to be very refreshing. Hey, you classed, classed up your keg party just a little bit. Yeah, well, they even made Damn them right. nice to look at. They're not just the, the dinged up, like, plain metal. They, they said they come in different colors. They have different labels that are pretty on them. So it is a little bit of a classier version if you want to supply for a group. <laughs> well, and I want to see if people are going to do keg stands with rosé wine. <laughs> 
That would be pretty incredible. <laughs> if anybody has any pictures, please post them on social media. Maybe that'll be on Distiller Dane's top five next time we talk to him. Oh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Coming up on Cast Club Radio, well, why was July 1st once known as Thirsty First? It has to do with Prohibition. We'll explain. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks for joining us today. And of course, July 4th, the holiday right around the corner, getting prepped, getting ready for that. Family, friends, great food. It's a very popular holiday. But one holiday people don't have as much reason to remember is Thirsty First, which was actually a name for July 1st in the past. And it has to do with prohibition and the rich history that uh, prohibition has in this country. Justin, can you explain? The Wartime Prohibition Act took place about four months before Prohibition fully kicked in. So the Wartime Prohibition Act that you're referring to for July 1 was banning the use of alcoholic beverages that have a alcohol content greater than 2.75%. And that was designed to save grain for the war effort, specifically to, you know, diminish the access of grain entering that market. And it was just five months later that Prohibition fully kicked in in October. So how did the transition from limiting alcohol percentage to actually banning alcohol completely happen? Yeah, well, the uh, 18th Amendment ratified by Congress essentially outlawed the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol. But uh, this book by Daniel Okrent goes through many of the loopholes that were in the Volstead Act, which was approved by Congress in October of 1919. And the Volstead Act is what became synonymous with the term prohibition. And uh, the first item in the book that he talks about is the rapid price in California grapes that occurred in the early 1920s as a result of the loophole that was created because people were allowed to ferment up to 200 gallons per year of what they call fermented fruit juice, otherwise known as wine. And uh, if you think about, go to your refrigerator and open it up and you find a gallon of milk, think about 200 gallons of fermented fruit wine that you are producing every year for you and your family, quote unquote. And then uh, the book talks about how during this first year, the price of grapes in California, which had never been more than 30 bucks a ton, shot up to 82 bucks a ton, so they more than doubled, almost tripled. And uh, they peaked in 1924 at $324 a ton, so more than 10 wow. times what their average going rate was. And uh, as Daniel talks about in the book, the quality of the grapes that was being used was not good at all, but it didn't matter because people just wanted to get access to the alcohol. So why do you think that uh, that loophole remained for people to be able to ferment so much? I'm not convinced that uh, folks who enacted the Volstead Act really felt as though they were going to be able to fully enforce what was going to come down the pipe when prohibition was put into effect. And back then, think about the 1920s, you still had many people living on homes, uh, on farms and homesteads who were doing everything in their own household. They were killing animals, they were tanning hide, they were planting crops, they were harvesting crops, and they were making things from those crops uh, for their own consumption on the farm. So this would have been just a natural extension of that. The second exemption that he had was more obvious, and that is the exemption for church sacraments, most notably for uh, kind of Catholic communion. And he 
talks about the quality of the wine actually being quite high uh, in the church, um, but the percent of alcohol was lower than uh, what traditionally had been you know, had in the past. The most interesting one I found was the uh, doctors. 15,000 doctors applied for permits from the federal government to allow them to uh, prescribe hard liquor for medicinal purposes. <laughs> and they handed out millions and millions of gallons worth of prescriptions in 13 years of prohibition. Every 10 days, you could get up to one pint of liquor. And the, the general malady that they were claiming in the prescriptions was for something they called debility, which uh, <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but that yeah. sounds like a made-up term. Yeah, it makes me think of what we've experienced in our generation with marijuana becoming legal for medical use. It's obviously, you know, some people have real things that they're trying to treat. But I do remember when I lived in Colorado before I lived here and when it got legalized medically there, I definitely worked with some younger people that didn't have anything wrong with them that mm -hmm. got a hold of <laughs> medical permits to use it. You had the general malady debility. Yes. That's it, right. Yeah. Debility. <laughs> debility. Uh, it sounds similar. Debility. Yeah. Yeah. Another item that popped up, because uh, you had a lot of breweries uh, that were open in, in business before prohibition on these breweries faced having no market because they couldn't legally sell beer. So the brewers started to package and sell uh, malt syrup or extract to Americans. Now malt syrup or malt extract is the precursor uh, before you make the actual alcohol in beer. So they began using the same raw ingredients and producing this malt syrup or malt extract to allow Americans to make beer at home, uh, just like the uh, grape loophole to make wine at home uh, to the extent where Anheuser-Busch sold more than 6,000 pounds a year of this malt syrup extract in the late 1920s. That's how they managed to stay in business during those 13 years. Wow. So there was definitely a lot of it going on that wasn't necessarily hidden that well. No. You know, this is the thing that policymakers have to always struggle with is you can enact a law but then you've got to enforce it. And what is going to be the mechanism and cost to enforce the law? Does it make sense? Uh, is there an economic justification for it? Um, and then just because you go to enforce it doesn't necessarily mean the courts uh, will uphold the prosecution or necessarily secure a punishment. So this 13 years of prohibition was one of those experiments in American history that cost people a lot of jobs, cost companies their existence, and at the end of the day, it was all for naught. And it created this entire underbelly of illegally made and dangerously made, uh, in many cases, poisonous alcohol that was put out in the system at very high prices during Prohibition because people wanted access to it. And this is the same battle, as you said, Mara, that policymakers are struggling with right now in relation to marijuana. Well, I was never a econ ace in college, but I do remember that as soon as you remove a market, that a black market essentially is guaranteed to develop, and that definitely happened with prohibition. Well, and I was reading, Absolutely. I was reading a little more into this, and something I was reading said that it actually, once they ended prohibition and they started making bars close at a certain time, they you know made a legal drinking age, yes, and, and regulations like that, yeah. that it it was actually less readily available than it was during prohibition. Yeah, yeah, there was a time after prohibition where in many states, if you were a woman. You're not allowed to be in a bar by yourself, unaccompanied by a man. Wow. Uh, bars were not allowed to have windows looking out into the outside. They didn't want people walking by the street looking in the window to see drinking, to see consumers drinking alcohol. There's lots and lots of examples of these crazy laws in the books that came about 
uh, again, in, a, in an effort to protect society from itself. So hard to imagine, like, July 4th being a, a, a holiday celebrated without adult beverages but at one point pretty yes yeah you would, you would spend fourth of july with your friends that had a farm where they could quote make, quote make yeah their, you know ferment their grapes homemade <laughs> <laughs> next on cast club radio we get to talk to the founder of one of the northwest premier food and drink celebrations We're talking about crave northwest it'll be adam hegstead on cast club radio is going to chat with us about this incredible event it's next Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now we are joined by Crave Northwest's culinary director and the visionary behind this amazing event, Adam Hegstead. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell anybody who doesn't know about Crave a little bit of the history behind it? Yeah, so I went to Sophie Fest in South Beach, Miami, and I really love the the vibe and the feel. Uh, I mean... It's hard not to love South Beach, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, going to their festival, they're really an amazing experience. You know, all the different activities that are going on, and all the energy and excitement that surrounds all that. And so I had this idea of sort of creating that in the Northwest. We wanted something that could help uh, be a catalyst and keep the movement uh, going forward for the great things that are happening here. And, you know, there's a lot of chef-driven restaurants and chef-driven concepts. And hospitality in in general is really getting a lot of, you know, a lot better. And part of that is just by people doing things like this or, you know, just doing their part to move the move everything go forward. So I had the idea of taking that same Sobe Fest idea and doing it in the Northwest. And I met Tom, who who owns Vision Marketing. Him and his wife own Vision Marketing. They put on big events like golf show, uh, ski and snowboard show. Put on a, a lot of really large events. And I'm uh, chef based, and so I have I know how to get the people together, and I know how to pull the vendors together and the chefs. I didn't know how to put on an event, so it was a pretty good meeting to be able to grab somebody that was interested in taking the leap with me to put on mm-hmm. this big event and. And, you know, be able to pull it all together. Well, you talk about the the Sobe Festival and what that did for the local community there in Miami. You're yeah. a Pacific Northwest native, so you know this area yeah. very well. What is it about this region in particular that makes it so special for food and and beverage? Oh gosh, we have we have everything right in our backyard um, from grains, vegetables, cheese. In the middle of the cattle industry, we have so much great stuff. We're in the hotbed of all of this great agriculture and, you know, a lot of it gets sent out and it's not even utilized throughout the Pacific Northwest as much as it could be and celebrated. Being here, we have, you know, being wild salmon and trout and wild mushrooms and we have so much great edible food and um, great producers and farmers and all these things. And to be able to, to really celebrate that uh, at Crave, that's what it's really all about. And, and and celebrate the people that are doing some great things with it. You know, winemakers, distilleries, the chefs, restaurants that are taking a little bit of a leap and doing some things that are outside of the, the normal, maybe you'd say a corporate restaurant or something like that. So this year's event is three days, 12th through the 15th. Actually, four days, right? Four days, um, yep. Four days. four days. At Center Place is a 54,000 square foot event facility in Maribu Point Park in Spokane Valley. Mm-hmm. How many people do you expect will go through there over the course of the full four days? So we have four main events. Those will be, there's a seafood a night is Thursday, Friday is foods from around the world, Saturday is fire and smoke, sort of a barbecue open fire event, and uh, brunch on Sunday. Each of those events will have about five to 600 people at those, so that's 2,400 people, and then uh, Grand Tasting, which is more of our sampling um, sort of event. 
on Saturday and Sunday. So people go in and they have just a small bite of, you know, some specialty vendors, distillers, breweries, wineries. They have like a little sample of things. Whereas the main events are more about showcasing the chefs and the winemakers and doing a little bit more of a, a dinner thing. And there'll be about 2,000 people going through the grand tasting. So about, wow. you know, 4,500 to 5,000 people during the whole weekend. Wow. So a lot of yeah. a lot of uh, people being uh, open to new experiences and, and new tastes. Yeah, definitely. In in your yeah. time doing this, what has been one of the most rewarding parts of the experience? Whether it's an interaction with someone who who does come through, whether it's a vendor or a chef. Well, let's see. There's a couple different things. So being able to work with uh, Jeremiah Tower um, last year, he came over to do our main stage event. And it's just really neat to be able to work with somebody that is really an icon and that I've looked up to my my career, you know, watching mm-hmm. him at Stars and when I was growing up um, as a chef, you know, reading a lot about, about him and then he was being able to work side by side. So now it's an amazing experience. As a chef, that's an amazing experience. <laughs> and then being able to share that with the community, you know, all the other chefs that are coming into town and then everyone coming in and putting their best foot forward. That was a, a pretty neat experience. But the other part of it is really the community and like the support we've had. That's that's been a pretty amazing thing too. So having the city of Spokane Valley get behind us and all of the people that are coming together, the chefs and the vendors um, and everyone else that has like helped pull this pull this off. Because obviously we could not do this by ourselves. And to see all, everybody come together at the same same event for you know really taking a leap and not even knowing exactly what I'm talking about when I'm having to come to this event. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing. How did you first get into cooking in the world of food? Um, I started as a dishwasher, as a lot of chefs. <laughs> I just really, I, I've always loved eating. Like my, I used to bake with my mom and um, really loved eating because I was kind of a chubby kid <laughs> growing up. But then uh, as I started as a dishwasher, I really got into it and uh, kind of developed a passion for it. I went to culinary school in, in Spokane and then ended up going to culinary school in Seattle as well. Traveled around a lot, apprenticed in L.A., read a ton of books. And uh, just as as I got more into it and as I learned more and saw more, I just the passion just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I started really diving into it. The more I learned and the more I I got to see. Back in those days, what was one of your favorite things to bake with your mom? Uh, it was just pretty. We we have a Midwestern palate, nice. especially I like in this it. area. You know, so it's like we have um, just regular stuff like chocolate cookies and muffins mm-hmm. and tater tot casserole and, you know, mac and cheese and just stuff like that. It's getting hungry just so thinking actually, about it. A lot, it. Of our restaurants, <laughs> a lot of our restaurants reflect a lot of that because it's, it's, it's taking something that, you know, it's not really definitely not fine no one thinks that's fine dining but if you can go to a place and have fried chicken that blows your mind you know everyone's had fried chicken so many times you know and you go to a place you have fried chicken that really changes your perspective of fried chicken that's an amazing thing and so that's the sort of the things that we work towards is kind of refining those sort of ideas i would come in for the tater tot casserole (laughs) (laughs) tater tot casserole is amazing sounds delicious well you have quite the impressive uh, impressive resume uh, 2016 James Beard Award Regional Semifinalist. Uh, yeah. Cooking as part of the James Beard Foundation Dinner. You participated uh-huh. in the Food Network Sobia Wine Food Fest in Miami and Star Chefs International Chef Congress in New York. Plus, you've got just a ton of accolades from uh, lots of the top writers in the industry. So you've had quite a career at a fairly young age, and uh, it's great that you settled down and uh, brought this passion to Spokane, uh, which, you know, is now trying to find its place in the food world. Yeah, well, you know, really, I think it's sort of like Wild West over here. And I'm really fortunate <laughs> to be here at this time and place. You have some people that, you know, people that are really moving here because of the quality of life and the cost of living. 
um, and we have an opportunity to enhance the culture and get people to, um, you know, try some new things. And, and then when you have people moving from, you know, larger cities over here just because of those things, you know, you can, you can venture out a little bit and we can put some stuff that's a little more adventurous on the menu. And that's really been able to, like I said, it was a great time and place for us to start our restaurant group um, because of kind of a collaboration of those things and people learning more about food like that. It really brought, you know, it's definitely in the United States that people are looking at things a little bit differently. It helps us be able to be more creative and people accept it. Absolutely. Adam, We before we get out of here, we have got to ask, we usually ask everybody, if we're having a, a cocktail party or uh, throwing a party and you could... Uh, have a invite anybody you wanted to, uh, and B, what would you what would you be drinking at the party? So I'm a simple guy, but not really. <laughs> so, um, I would probably say like an old fashioned or something like that. Just and specifically because it's one of those things that is obviously very simple to make, and you can get it anywhere, any Classic. bar really. Yeah. But to have an amazing one is kind of like that fried chicken idea. <laughs> that when you have an uh, old fashioned that changes your perspective, your like whole idea of old fashions. And, you know, it could be something amazing. So I'm going to say that for my drink. And uh, for inviting somebody, probably um, uh, probably Thomas Keller. I think I've uh, really looked up to him my whole career. And, um, you know, he's really changed the whole uh, idea of restaurants in the United States and um, done some amazing things. That is very cool. Well, you, you are uh, continuing to, to do great things. Uh, for the community here in the Pacific Northwest. So we really appreciate you, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Crave Northwest. Thank you so much. Coming up next on Cast Club Radio, you know our friend Distiller Dane is always out exploring. He has a new list of things to do, places to see, and drinks to drink coming up next in his top five, plus a cocktail snack recipe for your 4th of July party. That's coming up next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we are joined by our friend Distiller Dane, who's got a brand new top five for us. What's up, Dane? Not too much. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Getting all the way into summer here. I know. Summer's looking great so far. Great weather. Sun's been out almost every day so far. I love it. I have a theory. I'm I'm guessing at least there's going to be some summer-related things to do on your top five. There is definitely almost all of them. There's quite a few. Perfect. (laughs) All right. Start us off. All right. Number one is a new product I just recently found. So I like to go hiking or out to the river or the beach, hang out for the day. And, you know, sometimes you always want to imbibe while you're there as well. But the hardest part is, you know, keeping your beverages cold without having to (laughs) lug a huge cooler around and some ice. So I found this product called the Hydro Flask. It actually comes in like a 22 liter backpack or a 24 liter kind of tote, which is all kind of roughly around a six gallon mark. It only weighs three pounds um, and it'll chill your food and drink up to 48 hours. And it's also waterproof, scratch resistant um, and leak proof. And it just looks like a regular backpack or a tote and it looks amazing. Awesome. Nice. So what's this called? It is called the Hydro Flask. All right. We will check out the Hydro Flask. Number two. All right, number two. Previous weekend, I actually went over to Banks Lake in Washington for the first time. Have any of you guys been there before? No, I have not either. It's a huge lake, and it's actually the scenery around it is really cool. Um, I don't think too many people make it to that part of the central eastern Washington, but, you know, like Cascading Hills on the side of it, almost like a dry, arid kind of area. But the lake is super nice. I actually stayed at a Sunbanks Resort, which actually has a huge campground, but also these little mini houses you can rent directly on the lake. 
if you're going to go there, the best thing to do is definitely recommend going with like a boat or a jet ski or at least a kayak. But if you also just like hanging out next to the lake all day, it's really good for that as well. Those are all things I like. Yes. Number three. All right. Number three on my list is macaroons. I'm assuming you guys like macaroons as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> of course. <Yes. laughs> all right. Pro if macaroon. you're unfamiliar, it's a small little cookie-like pastry and there's a lot of macaroon shops popping up or places you can get them. They come in all different flavors. One of my favorite places to go is Lady Yum, actually, though. And are you guys familiar with Lady Yum? All right. Well, every Tuesday, they kind of have this little mini happy hour, I guess you could say. You basically pay $15 and it's bottomless champagne for the whole time you're there. And they probably have the best local selection of macaroons across the board. And they are all very delicious. They also uh, carry an assortment of all locally made shrubs. They can add the different flavors of shrubs to your champagne as well. Delicious. Bottomless champagne and cookies. Sign us up. (laughs) All right, what's next on your listing? Number four. So we were just talking about summer. All the flowers are blooming. I have a little collection on my porch, even though I'm in an apartment, but all my flowers, herbs, and plants are all coming out. And one of my favorite things about it is the hummingbirds that come. Because hummingbirds are kind of majestic and they just kind of fly in, do their thing, and go away so quick. So I actually got hummingbird feeders for the first time this year. I recommend this to everyone. And you put them out, and you get the right proportion of sugar to water in there, they go absolutely crazy. And they actually just come and drink all that, even instead of touching the flowers. That's pretty neat. I've noticed that they really love to come and hang out in, like, the early evening, sort of like the twilight hours at our house in our garden. It's fun to watch. I could just hummingbird watch. Yeah, it's really amazing to sit there and see them. The things I've noticed they've been most attracted to is also the lavender I have going. Oh, yeah. I seem to love that a lot. I don't blame them. You make a a hummingbird nectar-flavored vodka? (laughs) I'll I'll try that. I'll make a little sample and put it out there and see how they cater to it. There you go. Maybe I'll slow them down a little. (laughs) All right, what's last on our our list this week? All right, last on my list is I've always been a sucker for kind of the old, you know, like drive-through milkshake and hamburger stands. This goes right in place with summertime as well. And down in Olympia, there's a brewery, I may have mentioned them on here before, called Three Magnets Brewing. And they are actually doing a collaboration with Eastside Big Tom, which is the oldest drive-thru hamburger joint in Washington State. And starting just a few days ago, actually, they released, uh, they're going to begin to release milkshake IPAs um, that are influenced by Big Tom's Shake of the Month. And the one they just released the other day was a milkshake IPA brewed with oranges and vanilla cheese. Wow. Yum. So it seems like it's going to be a rotating series, which they're going to change with the milkshakes released by the drive-thru every month. And now, now you can go get a milkshake, a hamburger, and a beer that is collaborated with it. Sounds like a pretty good combo. What do you have planned for 4th of July? Uh, for the 4th of July, I'm going to be barbecuing all day. Hopefully be near the water for most of the day. Um, and then at night, hopefully indulging in some fireworks displays. Absolutely. Are you? Do you set off your own? Safely, of course. I do set off my own safely. I'll say Good. safely uh, over the radio show. But <laughs> yes, I usually I don't spend as much money on fireworks anymore for the most part. Being responsible, we like it. Well, thank you so much, Dane, as always, for uh, joining us for another top five. All right, thank you. Well, continuing on with our Fourth of July theme uh, for the show because it's coming up right around the corner. We've got a great cocktail recipe for you to make. Whether you're entertaining for big party or whether you just want to make one for yourself. Yeah, we've got the drink this week is the Boozy Cherry Bomb. And it's a beautiful red, white, and blue themed cocktail snack, I guess we call it. And it requires four ingredients. A jar of maraschino cherries with the stems Mm -hmm. on them. Our vanilla flavored vodka. A cup of white chocolate chips. And then a small jar of the blue sugar sprinkles. uh, What they call the sanding sugar sprinkles. Give kind of light dusting. So here's how we do this. 
Soak the maraschino cherries in the vanilla vodka for about an hour in the fridge. Remove the cherries and pat them dry with a paper towel. Heat the chocolate chips in the microwave for about 20 seconds uh, at a time in, in different intervals, stirring regularly until they're fully melted. Dip the cherries about two-thirds of the way into the melted white chocolate chips. Twist them around to get a little bit of uh, texture on them. And then dip the cherry in the blue sanding sugar, coating it about halfway up the white chocolate coating. Chill in the fridge for 20 minutes before serving and put them out and your your guests are going to just keep popping those things in their mouth. Is this a is this a family recipe? Did you guys come up with these? It's pretty creative. Aaron, yeah, Aaron in our office came up with this and uh, she shared it and I said we got to save that for 4th of July. So yeah. it's uh, again, boozy cherry bombs. It's like the adult version of the bomb pops when you were a kid. It has that same color yeah. layout. <laughs> yeah, they look put awesome. them on the uh, put them on plates and uh, send them out on the tables and, you know, then make sure you limit the kids' access to them for sure. Mm, yes. Yeah, we will share that recipe on our Facebook page and on Cast Club Radio. It makes a, a perfect recipe for also sharing on Pinterest. It's one of those things where it's a great visual and, and you guys have since started a Pinterest account and sort of taken off. Yeah, we've got almost 50,000 followers on Pinterest now. Wow, of. it's pretty <laughs> incredible. It's growing every week. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, as always, if you want to check out this episode or past episodes of Cast Club Radio, it's really simple. You just go to heritagedistilling.com or you can find them at cairoradio.com. Just click on the podcast tab and on Cast Club Radio. You can also find us on Instagram and on Facebook at Cast Club Radio. And as always, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Everybody have a happy and very safe 4th of July out there. Yes, please be safe. Uh, 4th of July is one of those holidays where people get into a lot of accidents and there's a lot of alcohol consumed, so everybody be safe. See you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling, part of Cairo Weekends on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM.